0: You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. A shortage of semiconductor microchips was a primary driver of early pandemic high inflation. These technological marvels are ubiquitous in personal electronics and cars, but increasing production is not easy or immediate. The Bipartisan Chips and Science Act was passed in August of last year, aiming to spur domestic investment into semiconductor research and manufacturing. On today's episode, we talk with Annie Rothrock, Vice President of the company AtReg, about the semiconductor microchip industry through the pandemic and how public investment will shape its future domestically and abroad. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Annie Rothrock, Vice President of AtReg. But first, a quick market update. Bond yields have oscillated the last two weeks from data releases and treasury auctions, but through it all, they have so far maintained the post-FOMC rally we saw to start off the month. The October CPI came in slightly lower than expected, causing yields across the curve to fall as much as 20 basis points immediately, before rising a bit after decent October retail sales data the next day. Inflation data are now cool enough that markets are confidently pricing in no more rate hikes from the Fed this cycle. In showing expectations for rate cuts to begin sometime in the first half of next year. While the data do suggest the Fed can be comfortable leaving rates unchanged at its December meeting, we think it's premature to start planning for rate cuts as early as March or May. With longer term bond yields declining so much over the past month, financial conditions are not nearly as tight as they were during Chair Powell's last press conference. The Fed will only start cutting rates once it's confident the economy is in better balance and price pressures are sufficiently tamed. Auctions for the three-year and 10-year Treasury notes went off relatively smoothly, given the worries over the higher Treasury issuance announced at its November refunding. The 30-year auction, however, was a different story. The auction tailed by more than five basis points and exacerbated investor worries that higher supply of Treasuries is going to keep putting upward pressure on interest rates. House Speaker Mike Johnson passed a clean, continuing resolution this week, allowing the federal government to stay funded through early next year. The bill managed to pass the Senate with overwhelming support, and as we record this, we'll head to President Biden's desk for a final signature. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Annie Rothrock. Our guest today is Annie Rothrock, Vice President of ATREG. Annie, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Will. Happy to be here.
0: Our topic today is semiconductor microchips, how they became so important in the trajectory of the pandemic economy and how they'll fit into the national investment landscape moving forward. Annie, to set the scene and understand your perspective, can you give us a brief overview of what semiconductor microchips are and how AtReg fits into the industry?
1: It's a great question. You're hearing a lot about semiconductors and chips in the news right now, but I think regular people outside of the advanced technology space, I think are often wondering what are these things that I'm hearing are so important to our supply chain. So semiconductors are sort of interchangeably referred to as integrated circuits, so ICs for short, or microchips or chips for short. And they're really a unique class of materials that can essentially alter the flow of electricity in order to operate miniature electrical switches. So, in you know, what does that mean <laughs> generally? Sort of in, in in layman's terms, you're using these semiconductors or these chips to process silicon and sometimes other kinds of materials into semiconductors for all kinds of electronic devices that rely on harnessing electricity for processing power. And they're really kind of the beating heart of tech. So there's lots of grand inventions that are out there or technology that works, but without a chip that you can produce at scale, there's no way to take that to market. They're extremely core. And you can sort of distinguish chips by their functionality. And we typically in the industry put those into four buckets. And I'll just touch on them briefly because it's, well, you'll hear some of this terminology as we have this discussion. But to keep it really simple, those four buckets are one, logic chips, which process information Two, memory chips, which store information. There's also ASICs, which are application-specific integrated circuits. ASICs for short, and they are single-purpose chips. So they do one thing. And then the fourth bucket is what we call SOCs, system-on-a-chip devices. And those really integrate multiple types of chips onto a single chip. So those are sort of the four categories that you can really think of. And semiconductors today are in everything. So your cell phone, your car, you know, in the 1950s, they were sort of limited to research labs and advanced military missiles. Today, they're everywhere. Uh, Your LED light bulb might have a chip in it, for example. Hopefully that gives a good understanding of just sort of at a base level, what we're talking about when we say semiconductors or or chips. And then to just sort of touch briefly on at-reg and my company's role in this space, essential to semiconductors are the wafer fabs where they manufacture them. And these are facilities that are right now around the world. And there are these incredibly rare and valuable assets. There's only really a few hundred of them worldwide. And my firm, Atreg, helps establish connection between potential buyers and sellers of these fabs. We're one of the only companies in the world that does this. Our work is similar to that of real estate in that we're brokering these fab transaction deals But it's also very similar to M&A in that fabs are so complex, it's really like the sale of a business. So you have the facility itself, the land and the real estate that goes with it, these clean room facilities where they're actually manufacturing the chip, the tools, the employees. And So we're putting together these deals. um, And our clients are folks like Intel, Micron, Global Foundries, and helping them either offload or acquire these fabs, which are essential um, to semiconductor manufacturing. And we work across Asia, Europe, the Americas, and we are really working to align buyers and sellers efficiently and understand their needs relating to technology, geographies, and markets.
0: I wanna go back to March, 2020. This mysterious virus was spreading everywhere around the world, As a human being, I'm sure you were just as anxious and bewildered as anyone else. But as someone in your position at At AtReg, what can you tell us about how semiconductor firms were seeing the economic landscape during that first stage of the pandemic, let's say the the first few months, and changing their behavior accordingly?
1: So I think something that semi-execs experienced early in the stages of the pandemic, like For so many people, those early stages were characterized by so much uncertainty, not just from the unknowable progression of COVID that we were seeing happening, but also from the really rapidly shifting customer demand uh, that was due to some of the quarantine restrictions and some of the confusion over government regulations. In the very early stages and and it's You also saw something sort of in terms of that customer demand was different across markets that you were seeing. So initially, uh, a lot of the automotive customers, which account for a very significant, you know, maybe 13 to 15% of the, the industry of, of the market demand, canceled orders, guessing that the demand for cars was actually going to go down. So that's what you saw very early on. You also saw on the consumer side an increase, but really there was just so much uncertainty for execs as they were thinking, what's going to happen with my customers? What's going to happen at my fabs? That was a really big piece of this, of looking at the restrictions that their employees would have. In order to manufacture these chips, you have to have employees in a clean room environment, you know, kind of on what's like a shop floor. They wear these these sort of bunny suits in a clean room environment because you can't have a single speck of dust that gets into these places. And it was sort of one of those e- essential workers that you saw that were needed, but government sort of regulations related to that did not keep up in in the early stages with that. So you saw a lot of fabs closing, which had a huge impact on the capacity and the amount of chips that they were actually able to produce.
0: When inflation started to really pick up in the US in the spring of 2021, I actually use semiconductor chips as this iconic representation of how it's a lot easier to turn the economy off than it is to turn it back on. Um, at that point, after the third stimulus spending bill and the vaccine rollout was going smoothly, it looked like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. and I think consumers were ready to spend again. In, in, in particular, they were ready to buy cars. but auto manufacturers couldn't keep up. They couldn't get enough chips in order to make the cars that people wanted. And so interestingly, this actually shifted demand to used cars and trucks, and used vehicles were a huge source of early pandemic inflation. Now, of course, this all comes down to, I think, the delicate process that you mentioned of running one of these chip plants and increasing capacity is, is not something that can happen immediately. Now that we're towards the final months of 2023, more than two years later, do semiconductor companies feel like they've increased capacity to meet demand or are they still racing to catch up?
1: It's a really good question, and you're right. You can't. This isn't an industry where you can just turn things on and off. I, I mentioned a lot of those automotive companies initially canceled their orders. When they canceled those orders, some computer executives were giving that capacity to other industry segments, right? So you also saw a massive increase in PCs and consumer electronics that were being ordered, and then when automotive companies came back and said actually we really need those chips right now because we are seeing demand for them they couldn't keep up and in terms of the utilization of these fabs in response to that pre-pandemic you saw most fab capacity was at 80 percent right now and during sort of the peak of the pandemic that went all the way up to 100% capacity. I mean, they were just running full throttle. That started to go back down, especially at some of the more advanced nodes. At some of the less advanced fab sites, you're still seeing sort of the capacity and the utilization of those facilities still running at 100%. It's going to take the industry years to make up the demand shortage, especially on the automotive side. I think in some other sectors, uh, you won't see that as much. You know, on on memory side, there's an oversupply right now. So some of the memory that's needed for PCs or for uh, smartphone devices, we have an oversupply, um, and that's causing some issues in the memory market. On the automotive side, certainly you're seeing now this catch-up that's still being played, and it's had a really significant effect on some of these older, what we call more legacy Uh, semiconductor fabs where they're really sort of having this revival (laughs) right Uh, there was a lot of talk around these more advanced facilities but because a lot of the chips for automotive products can still be made at those more legacy fabs you're seeing the utilization of them still at an increase right now
0: there's this term used to describe the unreliable signals in a supply chain called the bullwhip effect essentially Each link in a supply chain can only see one or two links ahead. And so it can be hard to know what the actual consumer demand is. And I remember there were stories early on in the pandemic of some companies that were hoarding chips and basically trying to get ahead, order a lot because they knew these shortages were there. And This, of course, was causing a run up, not necessarily even for current demand, but they just wanted to make sure that they had enough chips uh, for the future. Was there any sense that from the perspective of semiconductor firms that all of those orders weren't necessarily real, so to speak? That before they were going to invest in all of this new capacity, employment and everything, they were a little hesitant in thinking that this was just a short term blip?
1: I think that there was, you know. I think you you see executives saw the increase in orders and you have to think to themselves okay, you know, what is this really? At the same time, it is worth mentioning that on the automotive side, there's been such a significant change in the amount of chips that are needed for each car that gets put on the market now. The average number of chips that are needed in a car today is about 1,200 chips. That has doubled since 2010. And some of these cars that are going on the market today that are the newer, this is more of the kind of pure EV cars, you're seeing they need 3,000 chips for. I think it's a little bit a mix of both. I mean, I I do think that there was a sense a little bit with executives, you know, and the the semi-companies seeing those orders, sort of wondering how real is this? At the same time, everyone's trying to read the tea leaves of where this is going, and particularly on the automotive side, there's an increase, there's a significant increase that's needed in that area.
0: Yeah, I think a really interesting other source of uncertainty about the future to me comes from the technological utilization as the pandemic fades, specifically from remote work and AI. So how are semiconductor firms looking at those two things to factor in where they think the demand for chips will be from these potentially transformative changes in the post-pandemic economy?
1: So I think the work from home policies and the government stimulus in terms of what we saw on the consumer electronics side, you you saw a a big shift. I mean, PCs during sort of, you know, 2021, during height pandemic times were in huge demand. I think for the most part, in terms of consumer electronics on the PC side, on the smartphone device side we've mostly caught up with that demand at this point. And I think the government stimulus, the spending related to that, in fact, some companies are really seeing sort of a fall off a little bit in that area right now because so many of those devices were bought for remote workers or everybody got a government stimulus and perhaps upgraded their cell phone during that time. So you're actually seeing, you know, that I think we'll, we'll pull back on. AI is a really different story and one that I think is going to be a really sort of important place to watch. And the hottest stock in, in 2023, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably aware, uh, has been NVIDIA, which has made uh, a big name for itself in, in the industry and on the street, I think. NVIDIA is a company that's really leading a pretty amazing transformative wave of AI innovation. And the chip sales for data centers, which is where most of the AI training is centered, are their biggest areas of business. And NVIDIA, just kind of to focus on them, aims to actually triple the production of their high performance chip, which costs as much as $40,000 for one chip which is just sort of unheard of, but I think NVIDIA is kind of in a class of their own here and their competitors are folks like Intel and AMD who reported double digit revenue losses while NVIDIA's stock really skyrocketed. So I think AI is a place where you're seeing a lot of semiconductors companies right now trying to read this next step ahead and making a lot of innovations in that area. I wouldn't be surprised to see Intel and AMD because of, you know, what's happened here and because they maybe missed the mark a little bit in that area, working to catch up. And I think the only risk is that should the AI hype relent, the relative chip sales will decrease, right? So AI needs to be useful. And if it peters out, so will chip demand sort of generally and and specifically in that space.
0: I want to get into the CHIPS Act now. So it was signed into law during the third quarter of last year, and the aim, broadly speaking, was to increase U.S. independence when it comes to semiconductor chips. It's a a mixture of tax credits and subsidies to chip manufacturers. What can you tell us about how this looks to be developing in the early stages? Where is the production happening in the U.S., and what are the struggles or bottlenecks so far?
1: So really, the CHIPS Act, what it focuses on is my specific area that I'm working in every day at Outright, which is FABs. And it was probably the most bipartisan piece of legislation that we've passed arguably in the last 20, 30 years and was Biden's response to the supply chain issues that the industry faced during the pandemic. And it's, of course, tied to the national security concerns over China, but it isn't as simple as the U.S. wants to simply reshore all of semiconductor manufacturing to the U.S. Um, It's really not that simple. And so many of our allies, big allies, notably Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, are really critical in the semi-supply chain and will remain so in the future. But what does the CHIPS Act mean and now? And I think it's a really good question of sort of what's it doing so far? Well, the answer is so far, not really anything. <laughs> uh, and, and that's not to say that it won't do a lot in the future, but the purpose of the CHIPS Act is $39 billion that's been earmarked for manufacturing incentives. Well, what does that mean? That means that we're building new fabs these facilities where they manufacture the chips on U.S. soil. And that's going to increase the U.S.'s competitiveness in the industry. But the thing about fabs is they take a really long time to build. And what you've seen so far related to this is the chips act- applications are now open. So companies are actively applying and you're seeing Companies as part of the application for this, sort of being loud in their announcements of what they plan to do. And some of those announcements have been from Intel, who are going to build new fab in Ohio, an interesting geographical choice. You've also seen big announcements from Micron, who are saying that they're going to build their new Fab in New York. But in terms of The schedule for that fabs as I mentioned you know can take are are very expensive they can be you know 10 billion plus dollars to build depending on what you're building and they take years to do it the only fab that's actually been built in the U.S. in the last couple years was one that my team was actually involved in and it was a company called Wolfspeed who is headquartered in North Carolina They built a brand new, what we call 200 millimeter, which is related to the wafer size of the chips at the fab, uh, 200 millimeter silicon carbide fab in New York. They did it during the pandemic and they did it in two and a half years. So that's typically, it's going to be between two and three years, you know, once the funding is out and to the companies, once they've got all of the permits in place to actually build, that's how long it's going to take to actually see those fabs getting built. And then you're gonna have the issue of actually staffing them, you know, and that's something, you know, Intel, for example, is gonna be hard pressed to staff a new fab, which typically have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of employees at them and typically require pretty advanced engineers as employees to be working there. You know, you can also have technicians and operators that don't need to have degrees at that level. That's to to get those kinds of folks with those degrees to be moving to Ohio. That's going to be an issue. And and we already have a labor shortage in SEMI across the U.S. And it's going to have to be something that happens in conjunction with CHIPS Act is we're going to have to be incentivizing those kind of graduates to go to the industry the other area that i'll just touch on so i talked about the 39 billion that's been earmarked for manufacturing incentives as part of chips we've also seen 11 billion dollars which has been allocated to r&d to support the objective of enabling the us to continue to be a winner as it relates to the design of chips which we have been you know we've kind of remained on the world stage as the winner when it comes to design of of the chips. And we've needed to to be very protective of our IP in that area. But we're going to see some really interesting plays from the Fed and the Department of Commerce as it relates to R&D. And you'll see sort of manufacturing R&D facilities of excellence that they'll look to be building. And as well on the advanced packaging side, which is critical component of the semi-supply chain as well. There will be significant investments into that area also. Uh, And many semiconductor companies have argued that we are well behind, especially when it comes to China, we are well behind China, who has actively started investing government incentives into the semiconductor industry since 2015. They really sort of have a decade leap on us in terms of the investments that they've been making in building new fabs. You'll see China invest between 2015 and 2030 over $150 billion into semi compared to our roughly $50 billion that we'll invest right now. So in many ways, this is about a game of catch up at the moment.
0: I think you brought up a lot of interesting things there that I want to follow up on. So the first is that idea of competition with China or really any other foreign countries. You mentioned some of our kind of friendlier trade partners like South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Is there any sense that this huge public investment in the U.S. is seen as anti-competitive or unfair? Is it ruffling feathers in this global chip industry or, or how are other countries seeing this?
1: It's a good question. I don't think that it's being seen as ruffling too many feathers because those allied countries have seen the significant investments that China has made and the recognition that we have to be making our own. You know, In the EU, you've seen the EU essentially copy and paste the legislation and they have what's known as the EU CHIPS Act that they're going to roll out and you'll actually see some foreign companies take advantage of the incentives that will go into the chips act. So the chips act was actually a major impetus behind TSMC, which is, you know, a Taiwanese company, to announce two fabs that they're going to build in Arizona, which will be a total investment of about 40 billion dollars from them. Samsung is building a 17 billion dollar semiconductor fab in Texas. So I think that there is a big spirit of cooperation and working together and solving problems together, at least from the semiconductor companies themselves. My view, having attended a lot of recent industry conferences with executives where this is a big piece of the conversation, I think Executives in the industry know that Semiconductor has won by being an interconnected supply chain and will have to be to move into the future. There are so many elements outside of just having the fab itself reshored onto U.S. soil. There's so many things like the materials, for example, that you need as the kind of key building block of that manufacturing process that we will always have to get from other critical players in the industry that are outside of the US. There's always gonna have to be this element of working together. And and right now, what we're mostly hearing, except for, you know, from China, of course, which I think views this as a very competitive move, I think people are seeing it for the most part as a win-win for them. New fabs means more business for everyone.
0: When it comes to either investment that's already happened or is on the horizon, do you feel it's coming more from US firms or or is it foreign investment?
1: It's mostly happening from domestic companies. I think TSMC and Samsung and the deals that I'm telling you about that I mentioned previously, the, the fabs that you're seeing them invest in. That's mm-hmm. because they know that they have to. Their customers are asking them to have some geopolitical diversification in terms of where their chips are coming from. And so they're playing the game with them. But you're going to see a lot of investment from U.S. companies as part of CHIPS Act. And I do think that when we start seeing the money flow and how much money each company is getting, you are going to see U.S. companies winning in that sense. And I think politically for the U.S., that's going to be so important for them. But particularly Intel, Micron, Global Foundries, as well as some of the maybe more uh, mid-tier companies who need these government incentives to sort of catch up and start playing in the big leagues. You know, companies like Skywater Technology Foundry, who are really the only pure play U.S. foundry, um, you're going to see some really interesting announcements from them in terms of what they're doing with Ships Act money to build more U.S. foundries uh, and other, you know, more fabulous companies that, you know, have, Uh, haven't had the government incentives that they need to actually build facilities. They've been so reliant on the foundries like TSMC to be producing their chips for them overseas. They're now going to get to take advantage of incentives to build fabs here. So I personally think that the lion's share of a lot of the, the incentives and money that you see from Chips Act is going to be seeing U.S.
0: companies win. So considering the time intensity of this investment in making the plants and and increasing capacity, how long, and I guess this is a vaguely worded question intentionally, how long will it take for the U.S. to be a dominant player in the semiconductor industry? Is it really going to take seven to 10 years before we start to see more independence with this more resilient chip supply chain?
1: So it really depends. And, you know, will the U.S. be a dominant player globally in terms of production and and sort of manufacturing specifically? Then I think the, the answer is a little bit more complicated. And I think it's worth us sort of diving into. I mentioned before that already the U.S. is a massive player and a dominant player on the design side. Right. So our engineers have since the 50s and continued through today to produce the most notable leading edge designs as it relates to this space. Some of the issue has been that because we manufactured so many of those leading edge designs over in China, we've also enabled them as a massive competitor in the process, which is why we need to reshore that production here. Now to kind of, you know, think about this on the on the manufacturing side, I I noted earlier how CHIPS Act was in part a response to national security concerns. Reshoring alone does not necessarily ensure supply chain resiliency that you would need to be that dominant player globally in terms of manufacturing. And a focus on manufacturing has led many to really kind of underweight the importance of raw materials and materials processing, which is such a vital part of the supply chain and which right now is completely dominated by China. And so reshoring the entire semi-supply chain is neither practical really nor ideal. And some of those contemporary constraints related to that are gonna include labor shortages, sustainability concerns. You know, these are really resource intensive facilities from, you know, everything to water, chemicals, electricity that are needed for them, limited funding. You know, I said, yes, it's great that we have funding. It's still not as good as what China has put forward to build fabs uh, in their country and of course the continued inflationary environment. I think you should expect to see leading edge R&D manufacturing in the US. So in design for sure, but increasingly over time, and I think that's when you're more in that, you know, maybe 10 to 20 years, you'll see it increasingly in tooling and manufacturing as well will start emanating from the United States. And the manufacturing expertise, certainly, as you get more fabs built here, will be located in greater volumes in the U.S. moving forward. And you'll see, and I think Commerce has been smart about this as they've been educating themselves about where to put money from the CHIPS Act, specific kinds of manufacturing need to happen in the US, especially for example, as it relates to our defense products. But I think you'll see areas such as materials and memory, those areas within the semi-supply chain will continue to be global in production and quite probably dominated by other global players.
0: All of this is in reaction to that early pandemic phase where we didn't have enough chips, but I wanna consider the opposite, which is the possibility of a glut, uh, too many chips. So if we have all of this huge investment going to the semiconductor industry from this Chips Act, is it possible that in a few years time, when all of these plants are built, all of the money is taken up, we have capacity that ends up going unused? At some point, it's not necessarily the best use of resources. And I know that's hard to tell given the amount of money and the amount of time it takes. But is it possible that we'll have an opposite problem in 10 or so years where we have too many chips and we have a lot of these plants that are just idle?
1: It's always possible, right? I think most of the predictions that are at this point across a lot of the different economists within the industry is that this industry very likely by 2030 is going to be a trillion dollar industry. And if you think about where technology is going in terms of our memory needs, you know our data storage needs, the amount of consumer electronics that we all own and have on us, the amount of chips that are needed and new cars that are coming on the market, the amount of chips and processing power that's needed for AI, it's only going up. And so, yes, you know, could we have another global pandemic? Could we have severe weather conditions or other interruptions that just to the supply chain that would cause a glut? Of course, never say never, but all things being sort of equal and consistent, I think you're only seeing growth in this industry. And growth in this industry only means more demand and the need for more capacity. I think it's unlikely. And especially, you know, I mentioned before commerce is being smart about where that money is going. And one of the national security concerns is we want our chips that are used for defense products to be happening here in the U.S. Unless you think the U.S. military is going to stop spending on, (laughs) you know, defense products that they need. I mean, that alone Can help fill capacity and fab. That's not an area that I would be too worried about.
0: Is there anything else that we haven't talked about when it comes to semiconductors, past, present, future, that you think is underappreciated by more casual observers? Based on what you see in news stories, things that aren't really covered as much as you think they should be.
1: I touched on this a little bit, but I really think that the labor shortages within SEMI are probably the biggest threat to the industry right now. And it is a creeping problem that is coming up. You know, when you look at some of the universities in the U.S. that produce our best engineering talent, take MIT, for example those students and those, that talent, typically, uh, you know, in the 60s, 70s, they were going into semiconductor, they were doing, you know, hardware engineering, they were going into these clean rooms, they were working on the design for these chips. You're seeing now a lot of those engineering folks wanting to become entrepreneurs, start their own businesses and be very successful in doing that. Who could, who could blame them? But I'm in a lot of conferences and a lot of industry conversations right now where people are talking about how we need to start at the second grade in terms of encouraging kids and parents to think about semiconductor as a career path. And, you know, when you asked your question before about could we see a glut, could we see all this investment and these facilities being built and then, you know, see a lack of demand and and capacity really fall short? My bigger fear is you could see all this investment, see all these facilities get built and then not have U.S. employees to staff them. We already don't have enough right now, and I'm not seeing enough from the industry or from the government in terms of real tangible solutions about how you're going to solve that. Are you going to offer visas to overseas workers to bring them in to staff those fabs? I know that that's a conversation that's being talked about, particularly at TSMC's two fabs that they're building in Arizona. To me, it feels like this really, really creeping problem that we're going to run into here. And I think it's underappreciated. The average age of most engineers who work in these fabs is 55, 60 years old. They're already being paid extra by lots of companies, by lots of U.S. companies to stay on past retirement. I mean, and they're just offering them the world because these are people who have so much knowledge about how to run these extremely complicated, the most complicated manufacturing processes that exist. And it's not something that's really being passed down. Now, AI could solve that, right? And you're already seeing some AI solutions pop up that could really help with that on the manufacturing side. But at the end of the day, in the next 10 years, is AI going to be able to solve all of our talent issues? There's just no way.
0: Annie Rothrock, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having
1: me. It's a pleasure.
0: That was Annie Rothrock, Vice President of ATREG. Two important things stand out to me from that interview. The first is that our ability in the US to increase research and manufacturing of semiconductor chips is heavily relying on employees with unique skills. So any difficulties hiring these workers and relocating them to the often remote areas where the semiconductor plants are will hinder chip independence in the US. The second thing is that it will take years before the CHIPS Act has a meaningful impact on the semiconductor industry in the US. Ideally, the long-term commitment of public money will encourage companies who are investing over a long-time horizon. The October Durable Goods Report and minutes from the November 1st FOMC meeting will be the highlights next week in a holiday-shortened week. Financial markets will be closed Thursday, and we expect light trading for much of the week, particularly on Friday. The following week, we'll see whether the October PCE report confirms the lower inflation in moderate spending suggested by this week's CPI and retail sales data. The PCE inflation and spending data are more comprehensive and reliable than the reports we saw this week. Also, the November employment report, out December 1st, will give an early hint into how much October slowing job growth was caused by striking workers. Treasury's coupon auctions resume the week of November 27th with the two-year, five-year, and seven-year notes. These auctions will be closely followed considering the incredibly weak 30-year Treasury auction last week and lingering worries about the market's ability to absorb higher Treasury issuance. The next FOMC decision will be December 13th, where we'll see the latest summary of economic projections and, as always, hear from Chair Powell at his afternoon press conference. As we record, markets are expecting close to a zero probability the Fed hikes at that meeting. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperall, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.